0: Second of all, this is a hard sermon, believe it or not, because this is after Christmas. Christmas, you know what you're going to preach about, of course. You've got a lot of stuff there that you can preach on. But it's the week after Christmas, but it's not yet the New Year, so I can't give you all the New Year's resolution sermons. That's too early for that. So where do I go from here? So I'm thinking, okay, well, the week after Christmas, I'm going to pick up the story where we left off. Now, those of you who were here last week, this is literally picking up the verse after I preached on last week, for those of you who missed it or forgot about it, I'll catch you up. So what's gone on is the wise men came to Bethlehem to see the king Herod, who's a puppet king. Said, "Okay, this is going to be trouble." So he tries to tell them, "Listen, when you find him, tell me where he is, because I want to worship him too." He wanted to worship him with sword and kill him, but that's not what he told them. But the angel came and he told the wise men, "Don't do that." So the wise men went home a different way. We're picking that story up. In the book of Matthew, I'm not going to belabor this point, but just something I said last week, you'll know really strong in here. The book of Matthew is written with a perspective of fulfillment of prophecy. And you'll see he loves to bring that up. So it comes again in this one. So Matthew 2, starting with verse 12. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So those angels were busy, you know, crowding in a bunch of people's dreams. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Sounds like a good movie. I'm telling you escape to Egypt. good title. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the middle of the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. This is why most theologians believe Magi didn't show up until probably the first year of Jesus' life. It took them a long time to travel. And they got there a little bit later than the, than the Christmas cards seem to lead us to believe. Uh, anyway, because he didn't know how old he was. But he figured he could start with two and go under. He'd get them all. So he killed all the boys. Under two, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then when that happened, what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in a great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are now dead. Okay. So I was reading through this, and I thought, man, what is the deal with e- Egypt? Because Egypt actually shows up in a lot in the Bible. Now, that kind of makes sense in a way, because it was a powerhouse. It was a, it was a kingdom in the Old Testament, and it kind of lived through even into the Roman Empire. If you've ever seen the movie about Cleopatra, you know, that was during the Roman Empire. So the Egyptian, you know, influence in the region lasts a long time. But for our purposes, Egypt is actually symbolic. And I will not have time today to get into the book of Revelation to show you this. Just take my word for it. Egypt is symbolic in the Bible. Now, one thing that we teach here a lot is the Old Testament is actually the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. What I mean by that is that things happen in the Old Testament that actually will play out in our spiritual lives in the New Testament. And you have to kind of put the two together to see it. That's why the Old Testament is so important. In other words, things that happen that people actually live through physically in the Old Testament, we will live through spiritually. It's like a metaphor. Now I had someone ask me, wait a minute, are you trying to tell me that everything that happened to these people in the Old Testament is a spiritual metaphor for our lives? And it's like, no, not everything that happened. You know, if they made a really great peanut butter and jelly sandwich, that didn't make it into the Bible, so we don't have to worry about that, although I have to say, a really great peanut butter and jelly sandwich is a spiritual thing. But still, you know, if they made one, it just didn't make it in the Bible. Just the stuff that made into in the Bible is the metaphor, not their whole lives. But what's in the Bible are metaphor for our life. And so what happens is when you see people going to a place like Egypt over and over again, what's the deal? Because it must mean something. Egypt symbolizes bondage to the world in the Christian life. Now, I want to walk through three famous trips to Egypt today. God's people, God's chosen person, in fact was taken to Egypt or went to Egypt three times and we're going to talk about three different occurrences of this and we're going to show you how this repeats itself and how it means something and the first one is something that some of you know about because we talked about it not too long ago in the Abraham series. Abraham went to Egypt and when Abraham went to Egypt it was for a certain reason and this is really important because remember if Egypt is symbolic of our bondage to the world in other words we get caught in something what do I mean by that well it could be an addiction. It could be a sin you can't quite kick. It it, it could be lust. It could be pornography. It could be drink. It could be drugs. It could be anger issues you can't deal with, right? There's a lot of things. It could be fear. There's a lot of things in our lives that we can't seem to get rid of. You know, some people are just trapped by fear. They can't make a move for fear of things. And when we're like that, we find ourselves stuck over and over and over again. We're just like in this place we can't get out of. Guess what? Welcome to Egypt. You were in bondage to something. Something's got a hold of you that you can't kick. And you got there somehow. It wasn't coincidence that you're there. You got there. You got yourself there. And the way you got yourself there tells you the way out of there for you. So that's what I want to take a look at. So I'm going to tell the story again, just the highlights, because I know a lot of you forgot Since the two months that have passed, you know, we've gone to Christmas, had to live through the entire Steeler season since I preached in Abraham. It's a long time, right? God, it seems like a Steeler season lasts a long time. Anyway, uh, so so we're going to pick up and I'm going to kind of hit the highlights here a little bit. So Abraham, chosen by God, told to follow him. And he says to Abraham, look, if you will be my people, I will be your God and I will make you the father of a great nation, which was really music to Abraham's ears because Abraham was married to the love of his life for 50 years and had no kids. And God just said, if you will follow me, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, which would imply kids. And so he picks up and he leaves everything he knows, which is a huge act of faith. And they go and they get to something that we refer to as the promised land. It's the land that God promised him. So he finally shows up. I'm going to pick up the story here in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country to your people, I'm sorry, go to, from your country, go from your people and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you there. So from there, he went on toward the hills of East Bethel, Bethel means house of God, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, and I did a whole sermon on what that means, right? So he gets there. I'm here. Oh, this is the promised land. Here's where the promise is going to be fulfilled. Here's where we're going to have kids. Everything's working out. It took him a long time to get there. He's finally there. And he looks around and everything's perfect, you know. And so you would think at this moment that the next thing in the Bible is going to be about how God blessed him there because God said he's going to take him there and he's going to bless him. And he's there and he's looking around and, you know, it's kind of like, man, this place is perfect. It's nice grass, nice people. I hope you brought your bathing suit. I'm telling you, this place is perfect. You're going to make friends in no time. This place is perfect. Nice grass. Well, the people weren't so nice, actually. They were trying to kill him. But, uh, you know, I guess you could take your bathing suit and swim. It's a nice place. You would think it would take a stick of dynamite to get him out of there. But actually, what happens in the next verse of the Bible, the very next verse is this. Now, there was a famine in the land. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? This is the promised land. How is there a famine in the promised land? Wouldn't you think that wouldn't be possible? It's the promised land. This is the thing that God promised them and took them to. You know what a famine is, right? It's when there's no life. There's no life. Lifeless. That's famine. What happens is nothing rains, so nothing grows. Nothing grows, so nothing can eat what something needs to eat when they grow. And so those things die, too. It's death. It's like it, famine is a slow death. There is no life. The life has been squelched out of the promised land? Is that even a thing? Let me ask you, have you ever felt like God has a promise for you in your life? If you arrived at the promised land, would you expect it to be possible that the life of the promise God gave you would die? Because I wouldn't. I would expect when I got the promised land, it would be puppy dogs and rainbows forever. Rain and, and really nice, lush grass. This is God's promised land. Instead, the very next verse in the Bible says, well, you know, a famine came to the promised land. Now, this is actually a test. Abraham is being tested, and sometimes it's referred to as the famine test, and we go through this in our lives. But I think a better test is, is the Jehovah Jireh test. Jehovah Jireh is the name of God. It's one of his many names, and that means God will provide for you. Can you trust him to provide for you in the midst of famine? That's the test. It's easy for us to sit here and say, "Abraham blew it." It's a lot harder to sit there and watch things dying on the vine and think, "But you've still got me, right, God? I see, I see death all around me, and it's not looking real good. But you have me here because you wanted me here, and I'm okay, right? I'm still good. That's a hard place to be. So, um, actually, have to tell you, Abraham fails the famine test. He's kind of, like, wait a minute, famine, phew, nice place, but peace out, I'm gone. I'm gonna have to go someplace else. I'm afraid." So what happens when we turn away from the promise of God is we turn back to what we normally do. Yeah, before you knew God, you did things on your own, right? And we got pretty good at it, we thought. Really not, which is why I turned to God. But we kind of remember things differently. We remember, oh, I was pretty good at making things of my own. And so I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to go back to doing things on my own, God. Because clearly you've taken the eye off the ball here. Do you see the famine? I have really no choice. I'm going to have to go back to... Make it my own way in the world. And so, what he says, what the verse says, is he went down to Egypt to live there. Why? Well, because Egypt looked like it had still money. Egypt was a big country. You know, they had storehouses and they had different, you know, whole stores for grain and for, for water and things. And so, the famine hadn't affected them as much as it affected a lonely shepherd on a field of Canaan. And so, if I go to Egypt, I'll be fine. In other words, I'm going to turn to the world to take care of me because I'm afraid God will not. That's what he's doing. But we have to understand why. Why did he go to Egypt? Because things will take us to Egypt and we have to recognize them and this is why he left. He left because he was afraid. Fear took him away from the promise and into Egypt. And a lot of times, fear will take you away from God's promise and into your Egypt. Now, if God, t- if God takes you to Jesus, one thing. But if you're going there from fear, you're not going there from God. And it's important for us to understand that there's a spiritual war going on, and you're in the middle. In fact, you're the prize. There's a spiritual world going on over you. There's a war going on between heaven and hell for you. And you're going to be influenced by one spirit or the other. You're either going to be influenced by the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, are you going to be influenced by the spirit of the devil? Also sometimes referred to in the Bible as mammon. There's going to be the spirit of the world that's going to influence you. You don't have a choice. It's one or the other. You know, it's, not, it's like you're a leaf in water, and some current's going to pull you. It's going to be one, or it's going to be the other. And it's really, really important for us to recognize which one's pulling us and which one's influencing us, because if we don't recognize that, we won't know if we have to do anything about it. If God has you in the promised land, even if there's famine, he wants you there, and you're fine. But if, even if you're in the middle of Egypt and all of its wealth, if God doesn't want you there, you're in trouble. We have to recognize which spirit is influencing us. So I'm gonna give you a secret here. Here's something you can think about, and this is gonna explain to you really easy, as a quick test, which spirit is influencing me? What am I being influenced by? What's tr- what, what is taking me where I'm trying to go or where I think I need to go, right? Because sometimes it's hard. I remember when I was learning to sail, I was taking sailing lessons and I was out with my, my instructor on Lake Grapevine and I was not doing very well. Um, it's hard actually on the lakes because the wind moves. And he kept saying, no, 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 you gotta, you gotta, you gotta turn that you know, so it catches the wind. You know, turn it into the wind, you gotta turn into the wind. I said, I don't know where the wind is. I don't know about you, but I can't see the wind. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and the, 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 the Texas sun's beating down on us and the waves are chopping and I know there's wind out there, but I have no idea which way it's coming from, right? He says, you gotta turn into the wind. I said, well, which way is that? He says, you don't know how to know where the wind's coming from? I said, no. He said, oh, I'll tell you that. Just turn your head. When you hear the wind whistling in both your ears, you're facing the wind. I went, oh, how did I get to be 30 years old in my life and never know that? Because you know, it's so simple. You just turn your head. When you hear it in both ears, oh, that's the wind. I was facing right into it. What a really. This is kind of like that. I'm going to teach you a really simple way that you can know whether the thing that's influencing you is God or the devil. Because sometimes it's hard to tell. It really is. Because sometimes the devil seems to be taking you places where you want to go, and God seems to be taking you places you don't want to go. So it's sometimes confusing. So here's a real easy way God's a shepherd, he leads. The devil drives. It's real simple. Am I being driven or am I being led? And the funny thing is, even in our regular English culture, we use the words correctly here fear drives you, right? You've heard that? Someone's driven by fear. Someone's driven by anger. They're driven by anger. That's another thing that drives them. You're driven. What are you driven by? I have people bragging to me. They're I'm a driven person. Really? What's driving you? Because that's something you should ask. The devil drives. God leads. And so you should ask yourself, am I being driven right now or am I being led right now? Because that will tell you which way you're going. You're either going where God wants you to go or you're going where the devil wants you to go. It's really that simple. You don't get to sit still. You're always in motion somewhere. The other thing about fear is fear begets fear. Meaning, you'll start off being afraid of one thing, and before very long, you're afraid of a lot of things. I don't know anybody who's afraid of one thing, especially when when they're in the middle of it. They're afraid of a lot of things. If you're afraid of heights, you're also afraid of falling. You're also probably afraid of death if you're up high, right? All these fears start compounding on you, and you'll start making decisions based on your fear. I have made lots of decisions in my life based on fear, none of them any good. Some of those horrible things I've done in my life were based on fear. Because when you're reacting by fear, when the devil's got you running, you can't think straight. I don't know if you've ever seen cattle being driven on a cattle drive or like a stampede and see that wild look in a cow's eye as it's being driven. They're not making good decisions, right? They're just running. That's all they know. What's behind me scares me. I'm running to what's in front of me. I don't even know what's there. They they literally can drive cattle off cliffs. They won't see it. The devil gets you running he gets you driven by fear or anger or all these things, then you'll find yourself in a situation you can't believe. In fact, poor Abraham ends up in a complete and dead end. Because while he's on the way to Egypt, another fear hits him. He starts out with fear. I don't know if I have enough food to eat and feed my family. And on the way there, he kind of looks across his beautiful wife and thoughts, wow, she's really good looking. And if I get there and Pharaoh wants her, and I'm, hi- I'm her husband, he'll just have me killed, and he'll take her. I don't want that to happen to me. This is, by the way, a completely unreasonable fear, but that's how fear gets. You know, you start out with a fear that's perfectly reasonable to you, and, and you end up making decisions based on fears that don't make, don't make any sense. You'll look at it back later and say, why do I even think that? Well, it's because you're driven, that's why. And so he got this idea, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell everybody you're my sister. That way no one will kill me and take you off of me make you their wife <laughs> what a great idea that is so they get there and it works they introduce themselves around Egypt they're meeting everybody and people look at the beautiful woman who was there and they say who's this he goes well this is my sister and so now Pharaoh's scouts come back and say Pharaoh there's a really beautiful woman in your kingdom right now good news she's available so exactly the thing that Abraham was fearful of he's going to bring to pass by lying and so the scouts come by and says, well, you're available. You're his sister. Why don't you come with us? And they take her to Pharaoh's house. And there's about a year-long training and purification process to become the bride of Pharaoh. They have to teach her how to handle herself in, in front of the court and things. And they have to, she has to learn the customs and how to serve Pharaoh properly because they served him like a god. And so she starts the process to become the bride of Pharaoh. Now, in return, they give her brother, Abraham, a really nice place the palace he's a beautiful room all kind of money and he's sitting there and here's what his life looks like he's going to spend the rest of his life watching the woman he loves married to another man and he can't leave because he's there at fairest pleasure he can't leave he can't do anything about it he's gonna have to sit there and watch that for the rest of his life there's no way out the promise that god gave him well that's gone you know, the promise was that he was going to bless him in the land of Canine, Can- Canaan, and he's not there. He can't even get there. He was, he was supposed to have children to, to Sarah. Guess what? He's not going to have children to Sarah. He is not going to get conjugal visits with the bride of Pharaoh. It's not going to happen. So how's the promise of God even going to take place? He's in a complete and total dead end right now. His life stretched out before him, and he can see it, and he's miserable, and there's nothing he can do about it. This is what happens in Egypt. He's stuck. When you get in Egypt, you're stuck. You got no way out. You're like, I I, I don't know. So what do you do? Well, in his case, the only thing you can do when you're driven there by fear, because what's happened when you're driven by fear is basically you told God he's not enough. So the first way out is repentance. Now, we don't have this in the Bible. We don't see where Abraham repented, but he had to have. At some point, he said, God, I really screwed up. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know how I got here. I lied, and I ran away, and I ran away from your promise, and I thought I was going to fix things. I've made them worse. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. I should have never thought you couldn't handle this because you can handle it so much better than I could. After that happens, God stepped in, and he got them thrown out of Egypt. He revealed to Pharaoh through sickness and illness that he was getting ready to marry a married woman, and Pharaoh comes and kicks them out, and the promise goes on. But you have to get to the point where you repent. You have to get God back in your life, and in order to get God back in your life, you have to repent. There's a scripture in John. John's talking about this. He says, look, by this we know that we remain in him and he in us, that he has given us his Holy Spirit. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us because, watch this, there is no fear in love. What he's saying is when God enters, fear runs away. God is not making you afraid. God never makes you afraid. It's impossible for him to do it because when he shows up, fear runs away. He's saying this is it. Perfect love casts out fear. So we need to get the fear out of our life. And to do that, we repent and get God back into our life. When the Holy Spirit shows up, fear runs away. And now he can think clearly. And now he can say, Lord, help me. And God does. God is still God of redemption. He's a God of miracles, but we have to get ourselves right. I had somebody put it this way. I I love this. We have to get ourselves, our lives in a blessable state. We have to get there because God can't bless great sin in our lives. We have to get our lives to a blessable state. We've got to repent and we have to get back where we were. Okay, next guy, guy named Joseph. Been a long while since i preach on joseph so let me set up the story here joseph is a chosen one of god he's so chosen by god that god gives him a prophetic vision in his life and basically says i'm going to make you a great ruler right he's already got a really good life he's a descendant of abraham and his father is rich because abraham became rich and abraham's son became rich and this guy's father becomes rich and so he is the son of a rich man and he's the favorite son of a rich man. His dad actually had two wives. One he got stuck with and one he loved. It took the one he loved a long time to have children. And when she did, the first one's name was Joseph. And so he loved, 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 loved his son. We know some of the story of Joseph and a coat of many colors. Those of you who were through CCD class or vacation Bible school, we all know that story. They made a Broadway play out of what Joseph in his technicolor dream coat, I think it's called, right? So we all know the story. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Now, Joseph didn't go to Egypt for anything he did wrong, not like Abraham drove there by fear. It wasn't fear that took Joseph and Abraham. Everybody kind of knows the story. He shows up to give his brothers a message from his dad here in Genesis 37. He came to his brothers, and they hated him. They stripped him out of his ornate robe, they took him and threw him into a cistern, which is a big pit that's supposed to hold water, but there was no water in it. Uh, so it was just an empty big pit, like a big grave almost. And then they sat down to eat their meal, because what else are you going to do after you throw your brother in the pit? <laughs> and they're going to kill him. And the oldest one, the guy named Reuben, says, whoa, 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 we can't kill him. Let's just leave him in the pit for a while. Now, Reuben thinks he's going to sneak over later and get him out and tell him, get out of here. Everybody hates you. Go home. You shouldn't be here. But as it turns out, while they're all sitting there eating and, and Reuben goes to check on the flock, uh, it so, so happens that, that, a, that a caravan comes by and it's loaded with balm and myrrh and they're on their way, guess where? To Egypt. And they look and they say, look, Judah says, hey, you know what? Killing him won't do us any good. Why would we do that? Why don't we sell him as a slave and make money off of him? After all, he is our brother. If anybody's going to make money off of him, let us make money off of him. No, let's not kill him. Let's make some coin. So that's what they do. He's a victim here. Come on. He didn't do anything wrong. He was taking a message from his dad there. He shows up and they throw him in a pit and they sell him as a slave to Egypt. What in the world did he do wrong? How can we possibly say that he is somehow got to there because of something that he did? Surely he didn't do anything wrong. He is just a victim. In Galatians it says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. We kind of forget this verse. We like to think that God's just a God of love. He'll protect you from everything. Even if you make stupid mistakes, you won't pay any price for it. It's not what God says. He says, no, nope, you will reap what you sow. In fact, he says, if you sow from the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. Now, that could be lust. That could be fear. That could be anger. The flesh is a lot of things, right? It's not just one thing. There's a lot of things that we do out of the flesh, that if we sow that, we're going to reap corruption. And Joseph had sowed some of this. His, his uh, thing was not lust or anger or fear. His thing was pride. Give me the next slide. See, it actually starts with his dad. This is kind of a tough, tough way to start because it says that Israel, that's his dad, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, parents, even if that's true, you don't tell them, right? I mean, if you have a favorite son or a favorite daughter, you would never tell them that, right? You would say, oh, I love you all equally, right? Or I love you all differently. Or I love whichever one's in front of me at the time. I love all my children. and I love them all. You would never say, you know what? I kind of like your sister more. Yeah. Uh, yeah she's a she's better person than you are, really. I like your brother. He's taller, better looking. You would never, ever actually say that. Jacob had no problem, Jacob, Israel, same guy, had no problem telling everybody that he favored Joseph. Israel made him a special coat. He wanted everybody to know that he was his favorite son, this coat of many colors. But when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph. Well, duh. I mean, I just thought that my parents loved my brothers more and I hated them for it. It probably wasn't even true. But I thought, I have three brothers, I'm sure. I'm sure they favored my brothers over me. And I'm like, oh, that gets on my nerves. I can't imagine my my parents buying a special coat for my brothers so they could walk around this fancy. And this coat they had is is like, you know, he got a Calvin Klein, you know, special jacket kind of a thing. It would have been a $1,000 coat or something. It's like, I can't imagine how I'd have felt if I had seen that happening, right? And so, you know, he wasn't helping him out any. But Joseph did not help himself either. I think I got this back. We'll see. Because we see that when Joseph's 17 years old, his job, along with his brother, was to shepherd his father's flocks. But instead of doing that, he takes a report back to his father about anything bad they do. He's the snitch. Snitches get stitches, right? He's sitting there telling them, his brothers, how's that going to help him win favor and influence people? Huh? He's, like, he's telling them anything they do wrong. He runs back to dad and tells him. He's supposed to be there working with them. Instead, he's running home. Dad, 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 you'll never guess what Reuben did. He's telling on him all the time. And it makes him angrier and angrier and angrier. But here's the other thing about him. He was lazy. Because we see this in, in him. Uh, he, he, they, they're, they're right before this happens, where he gets thrown into the cistern, his brothers are all off working. One day, Joseph's brothers took the flock to Shechem, to graze them there. Okay, wait a minute. I thought the previous verse just told us it was his job to watch the flock with his brothers. But Joseph didn't go with them. What did Joseph do? I don't know. Apparently he stayed at home, colored in his coloring book. I'm not sure what he was doing, but he's at home. His dad walks out and he sees him standing on the porch, you know, doing whatever it is Joseph's doing, staring off in the sunset. I don't know what Joseph's doing. And uh, he said, "Um, (coughs) Joseph, um, hey, your brother's You know, the ones doing their work right now, they're over in Shechem. Maybe you should go check on them. Maybe you should go over there since it's like your job too. Go over there, see how they're doing, and you can come back to me and tell me how they're doing. He's trying to get him to do his job. He's lazy. Now, I want to say I can say this with some authority uh, because I'm a little bit like Joseph at a young age. Not that I was the favored son. I wasn't of a rich person. My dad wasn't. But I did think I was special. I've shared my testimony about how God stepped in and saved my l- life at a young age. And so that kind of made me think, well, I'm a favorite of God. And I got very lazy about that. It's easy to get lazy when you think you're special. In fact, I would submit to you that a lazy person is prideful. And here's why. Because they see what's going on, and they don't care. I saw what was going on. I didn't care. When I was younger, my, my dad was a preacher. <coughs> didn't make much money. And so we were, like, in a middle-class neighborhood, but we were on the low end of the middle-class neighborhood. And that's fine. I had a good childhood. I'm not complaining. But, you know, when you're poor, you you can't do certain things that people with money can do. Like, one of the things we couldn't do was take our cars to mechanics. No, especially not in those days. Uh, You would kind of require to work in your own car in those (laughs) days. And so my dad, who, bless his heart, (laughs) he's passed on now, he was not a mechanic. He tried. He was a very smart guy. But he had no mechanical aptitude at all but that poor guy was out there trying to change the brakes change the spark plugs (coughs) change a distributor cap whatever that is uh i don't even know change everything he was out there now this is something that those of you who are here who are poor you know what i'm telling you is true for some reason when you're poor your car always breaks down in winter i don't know it never happens in april have you guys noticed that it's never like oh, it's kind of a bright, shiny day. This isn't so bad. If I have to walk now, I can just go walk and get. No, it's always freezing cold or pouring down rain. That's how it always works. Now, in my house growing up, we did not have a garage. Noah's in that house now, he'll tell you. We had something called a carport. Now, a carport is is a roof and nothing else, a slab of concrete and a roof, which keeps some of the elements out, (laughs) but basically, It's cold in the winter. That thing freezes. And so my poor dad's out there working on the car, trying to figure out what he's doing, which is hard for him. And somebody has to be out there with him to be his quote-unquote assistant. Now, the assistant basically stands there and freezes and hands dad whatever tool he needs when he needs it. It is a miserable job right? I almost would rather be under the car. It's actually not as cold there as it is standing outside. So you're sitting there, and then he'll ask you for a tool. I don't know what it means. You know, give me the Phillips screwdriver. Ham said, no, this is not a Phillips. Well, I don't know that. You know, it's like, and so I was always having, hard, and I hated it. The worst one was holding the light. Can you hold the light for me? Because I never held the light the right way. No, turn it this way, turn it that way. I hated it. I froze. I didn't like being cold. And we would take turns. I have, th- I have two older brothers, one younger brother. Now, my younger brother was too young to help, but all of the older ones, we were all available. And so my dad would try to be fair, and when there's a rotation of the brothers. Oh God, I hated my term. Hated it with a bitter passion. Hated, hated, hated. Somewhere along the line, my brother Tim, God bless him, developed an aptitude for mechanics. He got pretty good at it. He started understanding things that even my father didn't, you know? And he'd make suggestions. And sometimes he'd even crawl under and try to reach into some place that my dad's f- fingers couldn't reach, you know? And he was a little older than me too, so he was more helpful like that. And so suddenly, Tim became my favorite assistant, the s- favorite assistant of my dad. And so my dad would come in to call a name. That's what always would happen. Like you'd hear him out there working, and you'd hear some, some un, un, unseemly uh, language coming from the preacher outside <laughs> as he tried to get things working. And then he'd come in to get somebody to help him. You know. you'd hear him stamping his feet, kind of blowing on his hands. You know, he's warming up a little bit. And then he was going to call a name. And that name had to go out. And I'm sitting in my room, as quiet as a church mouse, (laughs) please don't call me, please don't call me, please don't call me. He said, Tim, oh, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. It's Tim's turn again, you know. I was so happy Tim was going out. Now, I know that's not fair, but I don't care because it's not fair in my direction. And for some reason, I don't know why, I thought I deserved it. And this is how lazy people are. They're lazy because they think they deserve it. And I think that's what happened to Joseph. He was lazy because he knew he was chosen by God. The problem is God doesn't use lazy people. He'll take lazy people and make them not lazy people and then use them, but he doesn't use lazy people. So although Joseph is like, well, I don't really work harder, I just work smarter, the fact is he was just lazy. And all these things together is not going to be a very good thing we see after he sends him out to find his brothers in Shechem, this, is cr- this, this passage of the Bible just cracks me up. What an image this is. Joseph traveled to Shechem from his home to Hebron Valley. A man found him wandering in the fields. <laughs> just like looking around, you know, look at the birds flying over, wandering along the field making up a little song or singing or whatever. And this guy's like, what are you looking for? Why are you here? Oh, I'm looking for my brothers. You haven't seen them, have you? <laughs> you know, just like, this guy kills me because I could so see me doing this when I was his age. And they said, no, they're not here anymore, as you could see. This is all leading up to the moment when he walks up to his brothers and they take him, they throw him in his sister. No wonder. No wonder they didn't like him. Listen, Joseph ended up in Egypt because of his pride. That's what took him to Egypt. Now, you can be prideful and not be lazy. I know a lot of workaholics that are prideful. They're proud of their work. But pride is something that sneaks up on us all. He was taken to Egypt because of his pride. He would lose his pride in Egypt. Believe me, uh, being a slave will take care of that. So does starting a church. But um, you know, certainly, being a slave in Egypt does. He ends up in Egypt because of pride. And the way out of that is, of course, to become humble. If you have ended up in where you are because of your pride, and some of you know you're there because of your pride, stupid pride, People have even tried to help you. No, no, I'm fine. Stupid pride will keep you in Egypt. The way out is first and foremost to become humble. In Isaiah, the prophet puts it this way. For thus is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to renew the heart of the contrite one. This is the first step. You want God to be dwelling with you, which, by the way, if you're in Egypt, you do, because you're not getting out of Egypt by yourself. If you want God to be dwelling with you, here's here's how you can start, especially if you got there through pride. You have to become humble. He said, I will dwell with the humble, but he humbles the proud. And so our first move out, if you realize, you've got to be honest with yourself. I got here, I did this to myself, and I did it through my, my pride then our first step is, Lord, I'm sorry. I have let my pride get in the way of you. That's the first thing. The next thing Joseph does, and this is really, really important when when you've been prideful, is to be faithful. And God will give you something to do to be faithful in that doesn't even make sense. It would be years, by the way, before God worked on this in my life. I ended up uh, working for my parents for free because I was so prideful and so um, selfish that eventually it got to this point where they were uh, opening a store, a computer store actually, and uh, they had no one to work on it. I quit my job and I said, look, uh, I have a $200 car payment. If you guys will pay my $200 car payment for, me, for you, I'll work for you for free. And I did it because God told me to. And I spent many years uh, working many, many hours for free for my parents because that's what God gave me to do. You need to be humble first. And it, by the way, he made me apologize to each and every one of them. And then you need to be faithful. And faithfulness will take you out. In Revelation, God says this I know your works, your love, and your service, and your faith. And I know that your last works are more than the first. In other words, he says, You know, it worked. You keep working harder, you haven't stopped, you've been faithful. And here's a thing that really, really strikes me about Joseph. He was faithful, and you know who benefited from it? His masters. If you read the story of Joseph, the people who own him as a slave get rich because he is such a good slave. Do you know how humble you have to be to accept that? You have a boss you hate. Have you ever had a boss you hate? Just can't stand, they're lazy, they don't do their job, or they got the job because you know they're the boss's son or 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 something they don't deserve it. I don't even know how they got their job, but they're they're in charge of you and they don't deserve it, and you do the work and they get the credit. Have you ever been there? This is what God did with Joseph. Like times 10. He says, You're gonna be faithful to me. You're gonna do what I give you to do because you're gonna have to learn humility. And when you can accept that other people are getting credit for what you're doing, and other people are getting rich because of what you're doing for them, and they're not even thanking you, that's when you know that God is working on your spirit to make it humble and contrite. That eventually will bring Joseph back to the promised land, bring him back to the dream that God gave him. He will eventually step into the destiny. He'll become the most powerful person on the planet by being humble and faithful the infinite God is never out of time. He knew what he was doing. Now, I want to be real clear about something. I don't believe that what happened to Joseph was fair. I don't even think it was necessarily God's plan. But God will never protect you from what he can perfect you through. And he saw that him going to there and being his slave was exactly what he needed. And he worked with it, and he made him better. By the time Joseph steps into power, he is perfect in all ways. I mean, he's amazing, forgiving of his brothers. He handles everything, he never takes a bribe, he's faithful. God developed in him the character that he would need to give him the power that he was going to be handed. But the way out for him was first humility and then faithfulness. But what about Jesus? I don't have a second left. Because I start all the whole thing out. Jesus ends up in Egypt. What did Jesus do wrong? He was a baby, thought he was perfect. He is. He is. Here's the third way you end up in Egypt. God sends you. He was sent to Egypt. Remember, an angel shows up. Get him to Egypt. Why? Well, for one thing, he had to fulfill prophecy. For another thing, his life changed Egypt. It's funny because as I was preparing this, I realized that was true. I realized that when Jesus, the baby, entered the country of Egypt, Egypt started changing because I know that had to be true, but I had no historical evidence of that. I didn't. I'm like, God, I know this is true, but I I don't know if I can preach it because I can't prove it. I don't have a scripture that talks about it. I don't have a historical reference. Last night, Rick Saccone was here. Those of you who know Rick, he was over in Holy Land recently. And he did a tour of all around there, including Egypt. And he told me he met a group of Christians there who called themselves the first Christians. And He gave me the name. I meant to get it off of him. I can't remember it now. Um, But anyway, I'll probably post it in the comments of this online. But they, they met him. They're, they're Egyptian Christians. They said, We were the first Christians. And he said, Why would you say that? You know, he's curious. He said, Because we started worshiping Jesus when he was a baby. When Jesus shows up in Egypt, things start changing. Uh, wells and oases, which had been dried up, come back to life. Uh, whole orchards and vineyards that had dried up and been barren for years start flowering again. And the Egyptian people knew something was going on. They didn't know what it was. And they found the baby Jesus and they started worshiping him. They didn't know what he was, but they knew he was special. And they followed his ministry when he becomes the Messiah. And they adopted him before anybody else, according to them. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they said. I mean, I don't know if they're the first is what I'm saying. I kind of think that maybe the shepherds were first. But, hey, maybe it was them. But the point is when Jesus ends up in Egypt, things start changing in Egypt. When he was sent to Egypt, it was symbolic for us, though, that he was going to destroy our bondage. So we would never have to be in bondage again. Jesus went there and destroyed it. That's why God sent him there. If God sends you in the world for a purpose, you will change the world. That's different than running there out of pride. That's different than running there out of fear or out of anger or out of lust or out of selfishness. When God sends you, It is to do God's purpose. He says this in Luke when he first starts his ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. I've come to set free those who are oppressed. And he started doing it even as a baby when he went to Egypt. Egypt is no longer any holding for you because it's been defeated by Jesus. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll give us appreciation.